So I was at the cocktail hour, and it started out real well. I ran into someone who I hadn't met before, and she told me that I reminded her of a, of a movie star. I said, well, which one? And she said, Russell Crowe. I said, Russell Crowe? You mean Russell Crowe like Gladiator? She said, no, Russell Crowe like a beautiful mind, you know, one where he had to put on like 10 pounds and look frumpy. That Russell Crowe. Started out good. So then we had dinner afterwards. Holland Hart hosted a dinner. Very nice. Uh, we had a representative from Holland Hart at our table. Uh, Lucy, if any guys know Lucy. You know, I thought we were going to talk business, but she kept wanting to talk about AshleyMasson.com website. You guys ever hear that? No? Well, that's interesting because, you know, no one's heard of that. So it turns out that they did a study, and somewhere between uh, all or substantially all of married people know what Ashley.com is. But it was funny, just like here in this room last night, no one at the table, despite they're all married, no one knew what it was. I'll let you guys figure out what it is on your own. <laughs> you guys really don't know. <laughs> so anyways, let's get back to the presentation. So who here has heard of Dexy Midnight Runners? Pretty much everyone. Great poets, right? Let me read you some of their poetry. Poor old Johnny Ray. Sounded sad upon the radio. He moved a million hearts in mono. Our mothers cried and sang along, and who'd blame them? Now you're grown, so grown. Now I must say more than ever, go, Torah, Laura, Torah, Lou, Rai, I. And we can sing just like our fathers. Isn't that something? Isn't Torah, Laura, Torah, is that in Afghanistan? But it gets better. These people around here wear beaten down eyes, sunken smoke-dried faces. They're so resigned to what their fate is. But not one of us, not one of us. We are far too young and clever. Remember, Torah, Laura, Torah, Lou, Rai, I, Eileen. I'll hum this tune forever. And then, you know, here's the topper. With you in that dress, my thoughts I confess, verge on dirty. Oh, come on, Eileen. Yep. That's come on, Eileen. A one-hit wonder. There's other one-hit wonders. These are VH1's top ten list of one-hit wonders. Three of my favorites are Tainted Love, Mickey, and sort of 99 Luft Balloons, but in a different way. It was pretty fascinating at the time. But uh, all one-hit wonders, you know, all famous songs. You know, what made these artists successful? Well, they must have had something. They must have had talent. Uh, something worked for them, I mean, but they only had one hit. Well, today we're going to talk about entrepreneurship, but we're not going to talk about as one-hit wonders. Because often one-hit wonders are right place at the right time. There's an element of luck and good fortune. Certainly, there's an element of, of perseverance and skill, but it's still a one-hit wonder. Facebook is a phenomenal success. I don't know if any of you read the book upon Facebook. Uh, the title was Accidental Billionaires. Uh, it was about you know, this guy, uh, Mark, who was somewhat insecure, and that let it, drove him. That was the source of energy that made him create Facebook. But you know what? Facebook's a one-hit wonder. You know, so we're really not talking about that kind of entrepreneur today. 
And we're not even talking about Google. I mean, Google's changed the world, no question about it. You can't take that away. Uh, and there's been other people throughout history who have changed the world, but I don't know what these guys can do with the rest of their life, and maybe they'll do a whole bunch of other interesting things. But as of right now, they're, they're more in the category of one-hit wonder. A big hit, though. Who knows who this guy is? Does he look familiar? Raise your hands. Yes? Mark Cuban. Now, this is a one-hit wonder. I don't know if you guys know the full story. You know probably from the Dallas Mavericks. But his claim to fame was Broadcast.com. It was actually, the company was called Cameron Broadcast Systems. And that wasn't uh, long for CBS. That was long for this guy named Cameron, who was the founder. His idea was to have a handheld software radio that received broadcasts inside sports venues. And that was you know, sometime before the Internet really took off. But then the Internet really took off. So they got very innovative, and they changed their name to AudioNet. And then a year later, they got even more innovative, and they changed their name to Broadcast.com. And they brought in this guy, Mark Cuban, who happened to be a roommate of one of the guys. You know, a few months later, they went to the IPO route. Uh, it was a record IPO at the time. So that was January 1998. In April of 1999, Yahoo acquired them for $5.7 billion. And obviously, Mark Cuban became a billionaire and bought the Mavericks and I'm sure he's doing a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I don't, as far as I know, Broadcast.com really never made its way into the Yahoo success story at all. It's more of a, just gave a bunch of their equity away. So Mark Cuban definitely fits in the category of one-hit wonder. The Flamingo, Las Vegas. This guy's, this actually, guy's actually a two-hit wonder. This is, uh, his name's Benjamin, better known as Bugsy Siegel. Uh, Bugsy, uh, the nickname Bugsy was for Bugs because he seemed kind of you know, crazy or erratic or, I guess, bug-like. I, don't, I think he didn't really like that name. But his first claim to fame and his first one hit was literally a hit he did on a guy by the name of Big Greeny on behalf of Lepke Buchler, who was the boss of Murder Incorporated. So, so Bugsy pulls off the hit, makes a name for himself, then he gets sent over to this desert area, and out of that desert area, he created Las Vegas. A lot of people credit him for creating Las Vegas. Uh, and the Flamingo is both his greatest accomplishment and eventually what did him in. And that, I guess, was his second hit because then he became the victim of a bullet when he overran the budget and was skimming some money off the top. So another example of a one-hit wonder. Bill Gates, second riches, first riches. I can't remember how it came out this year. Guy in the world, but sorry, Bill. You are a one-hit wonder. You know, I get the Microsoft Excel and the other applications, but... Is really the DOS that led to uh, kind of the dominance that they had and the success. And I'm not certainly would never take anything away from that, but you know, he's a one hit wonder. Like I said, this talk is not meant to be about one hit wonders. Uh, but what this talk is a bit about is entrepreneurs gone bad. Just a little bit about. So, what do I mean by that? Well, let's start with one of the uh, most infamous popes. Pope Sixtus, the, I don't know, what is that, five or four? Uh, he realized there was money to be made in damnation, so he would sell uh, tickets. I forget what they called them at the time, but it would get you out of purgatory. So if you spend that much money, either you or your loved ones would never have to spend time in purgatory. You'd get a free pass to heaven. I guess he also licensed Rathos. So he was definitely an entrepreneur gone bad. <laughs> Steve Case, I actually met Steve Case uh, sort of. I was in a swimming pool in Hawaii, and I went to introduce myself. This was well after he sold AOL. 
he seemed like a nice guy, and I, I knew someone who knew him. And they said he was a nice guy. So, he, you, know, eth, you know, ethical wasn't his issue, but, you know, he was definitely a one-hit wonder. He, you know, AOL really launched the Internet in many ways. Uh, but then it, uh, you know, as it was riding down, instead of him, I think, being intellectually honest of where he was, he was able to convince Time Warner Telecom to bail him out in an acquisition that, I mean, the amount of money is just staggering, $350 billion dollars. Time Warner paid for AOL, $350 billion. And what is it now? I mean, they're spinning it out. It's worth almost nothing. So you'd have to say that's a little bit of a gone bad story. This is definitely a gone bad story. Uh, Dennis Kozlowski. Uh, Dennis is a very successful entrepreneur within you know, a large company, but progressed from starting in the year 1975, becoming CEO of Tyco International in 1992. And and really had a great run for 10 years, built a lot of value, acquired I think, hundreds of companies. You know, by some counts, 1,000 companies were acquired under his watch. But then he started to confuse the difference between what was his company's money and what was his money, starting to use his money for his own purposes, including extravagant, extravagant 40th birthday party for his trophy wife. He, he was nice in that it cost $2 million, and he stuck a million of it in there with his own money and had the company pay for the other million. Uh, I don't know if you guys probably remember this. They had an ice sculpture statue of David kind of pouring. I'll use the word pouring instead of another word. Uh, vodka into the uh, people's glasses. Uh, just extravagant. You know, his, uh, he'd buy condos in New York with companies' money, decorate them. So his issue was he just got confused, and now he's got a lot of time to think about it because he's in jail. Another one, I'm sure there's a lot of people with cable background in this room, John Riggis. Another guy who got a little confused as to what was his responsibilities as a transition from being an entrepreneur and owning his own company to one where he took public dollars uh, and he still, began, he still ran the company like it was a family business. And you know, if he needed money, uh, lots of money, he would just take out of the company and uh, perhaps get to tell folks about what he was doing with it. So he's another guy who's spending some time in jail which is really sad, because I mean, I'm sure he worked real hard for years and years and years to do what he did, just lost his way. Enron I have a little first-hand experience with. Uh, you know, I was in the telecom industry during the big telecom boom, spent some time with Enron because one of their concepts was bandwidth trading. Uh, so I had first-hand visibility into their culture and how just dysfunctional it became. Uh, to them, it became more about uh, the perception of how much value you're creating as opposed to value you're really creating, using accounting gimmicks, uh, using uh, very uh, obscure footnotes to describe transactions that uh, were written in a way that no one could understand them, but gave them the air cover to show significant profits quarter over quarter, and then it all came crashing down. Uh, Skilling's in jail, and Ken Lay, uh, I think he, I can't remember if he died or committed suicide, but you know, was probably headed to jail himself, had that not have happened. So another tragic end. Entrepreneur's gone bad. Another one near and dear to the hearts of, I'm sure, a lot of people in this room, Quest under Joe Naccio. Uh, another company I had firsthand experience with while at level three and, and what was being done in the industry with revenue swaps. I think Joe's first uh, issue was similar to AOL's. You know, he had a company, his original Quest, which was uh, maybe struggling relative to its enterprise value, but instead of fessing up, he was able to convince the traditional Quest to merge with him and really, only after that did it become clear that the original Quest was a bit of a house of cards, like a lot of telecom companies were in those days. 
But then to make matters worse, he was trying to prolong the period of time before that became clear by doing these revenue swaps where he would trade assets with another company. They would both count as revenue, but significant chunks of revenue. And lo and behold, it looked like their revenue and EBITDA was on a steady flow up. But what it really was is just these, these kind of phantom transactions that were taking place. Uh, I think Joe's still fighting uh, to not go in jail, but he was convicted of bad stuff. And then the last one that I've had direct visibility and involvement with even was WorldCom. I was at WorldCom for a little less than a year after WorldCom acquired MFS Communications. Uh, I, uh, at the time, was reporting to the COO of WorldCom, Ron Beaumont, and the vice chairman, John Sigemore, so both of which worked real closely with these guys. And I you know, spent quite a bit of time, particularly with Scott Sullivan. And Scott was a good guy, a smart guy, a hard worker, but he lost his way in that under tremendous pressure of setting expectations that he was the best CFO on Wall Street at a very young age, you know, early 30s, and under pressure to show kind of quarter over quarter uh, financial results, they started to cook the books. They started to do accounting gimmicks, usually related around acquisitions, in order to just buy themselves time, hoping something was going to save them. And unfortunately, uh, they're both spending time in jail right now, and you know, it's a sad outcome. You know, definitely entrepreneurs gone bad. But what we're mostly going to talk about here is entrepreneurs who are that special breed, you know, serial, great serial entrepreneurs. With great serial entrepreneurs, it's hard to describe it as luck. You, know, you take a guy like, oops, like Ben Franklin and everything he did from bifocals to lightning to helping with the Constitution, the Almanac. I mean, it's hard to say, you know what, that guy was just in the right place at the right time. Chances are he would have been successful, and there's something about when he was achieving early success that led to greater success over time. Uh, likewise, John Malone, a local uh, uh, talent around here, just time and time again over a period of years has had one innovation after another. Branson, just a great entrepreneur. I mean, he uses the Virgin brand for so many different things, and you know, he, he's got some philosophies that I think are very interesting uh, around how to keep companies small and entrepreneurial and independent from one another and then find kind of entrepreneurs underneath them who could really run with the ball. And I, I try to use that model in Zayo to, uh, to really push that forward. I've been meaning to write a blog series on that, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. But just a great entrepreneur who's got his hands in so many things, and every one of them seems to work out successfully. Ted Turner, I mean, from media to cable TV... Uh, just time and time again over a period of decades has achieved success after success after success. Steve Jobs. I mean, you don't get much more successful than this guy. I mean, everything from you know, the original Macintosh and Apple computers to now the iPhones and, and even the Pixar uh, movie uh, animation studios. I mean, just the guy is phenomenally creative, phenomenally successful. And then the last example is my favorite is Warren Buffett, who you might not think of as an entrepreneur per se, but when you see all the companies that he has spotted and recognized and supported and brought as part of his portfolio, there's something about him that's extremely entrepreneurial. I mean, and, and these companies retain their own character even after they become part of uh, Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, from Geico commercials, Fruit Loom, Seas Candy, Dairy. I mean, these companies are just household branding companies that have transitioned from being independent of him to being part of him and still have maintained themselves as successful, thriving companies. And what a track record the guy has. 
So what is it about these great serial entrepreneurs? What makes them successful? What makes them different? Uh, what's the anatomy of a great serial entrepreneur? So let's start with desire and hunger. I mean, any one of these folks could have stopped after their first or second or third success and bought the Dallas Mavericks or whatever the popular team was at that time and lived a good life, but for some reason, they wanted to do it again, and they wanted to do it another time, and they wanted to stay active. So desire and hunger, not just in the early stage that led to their initial success, but led to the continuation of it over the years. A risk tolerance, maybe less so as these guys got you know, very successful because it's kind of hard to uh, lose that much, but, but there's something about their whole nature and their whole DNA that must have progressed through their entire time where, hey, they were willing to roll the dice again, not just with their money but with their reputations. I mean, that, that's something that maybe can be underappreciated is that when you have a string of success like these guys have had, you know, you've got to start, at some point you've got to start worrying about, geez, I don't want to have a bad mark because that's going to take away from all I have achieved. But for some reason, these guys just keep doing it. There's something about the risk tolerance. And Branson, I guess, takes that to a whole other level. Tenacity and drive. I mean, Warren Buffett is how old now, and he's still active and, and moving along. And the leader of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Steve Jobs, has battled through uh, some very serious medical situations and keeps coming back and keeps contributing to that firm. I mean, they all have that tenacity and drive just like, you know, the entrepreneurs in this room do. But they've maintained that year over year and even after the success stories that they've had. There's also something about just, you know, what's in your head, intelligence or capability. And, and the way I would say it is, is, is it's not just intelligence in general. It's also the, the knowledge, the know-how of how to make people money, you know, how to be financially successful. I mean, so important. I mean, the, the companies that I've had involvement with, uh, it's amazing how you could tell when, when someone really knows and understands what it means to build up equity value, so value for your stakeholders, versus others who are just trying to make their budget or just trying to put together a budget or you know, reporting that they had a good sales month. You know, the knowledge of how to really make people money is so important, I think, with any you know, successful serial entrepreneur. But it's more than just the right side of the brain, it's the left side of the brain as well. It's creativity. I mean, every one of these, I mean, you look at what they've done, and, you know, there's creative, 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 creative solutions that they've come up with time and time again. And pride. You know, there, there's a sense of pride that has got to be at the core of what drives all these folks. I mean, the pride to just want to do it and want it to be successful and, and will it to be successful and not wanting it to fail, not want to let people down. And that's got to be a huge part of what, is, what inspires these folks to keep going. But here's my question, the title of the talk. What about the soul? What is the soul of a successful serial entrepreneur? Think of the entrepreneurs gone bad. Those were talented folks. A lot of them were, a lot of them were successful serial entrepreneurs for a long period of time. They probably had most of the capabilities that we already discussed. But what didn't they have? Integrity, moral compass. They lost their way. So at the end of the day, it's the soul of the entrepreneur that I think really pulls us all together. How many people in the room are entrepreneurs as opposed to investors or professional services? So about half. So 
since you're here and since you uh, have had success in the past or else you wouldn't be here, I guess the answer to this question is probably pretty obvious. We all want to be, I suspect, great serial entrepreneurs. Even the folks who are in the investing side and the professional service side, you're running your firms too, and there's an entrepreneurial component of that. So the question is, do you have what it takes? So when you think about the anatomy of a successful serial entrepreneur, you look at those attributes, do you have those? Now, you're willing to do what it takes, even if it costs you a lot of money, and that's when it comes to the moral compass part. So do what it takes doesn't mean I'm going to be successful at all costs. I guess it could be if you're planning on being a one-hit wonder or if it's okay if it goes bad at the end. But if you want to be a successful serial entrepreneur, it's got to also include that you're willing to do whatever it takes, even if it doesn't uh, fare well for you personally at a given point in time. So the advice I would give is for people to think extremely long-term. And by extremely, I'm not talking about the company you're with right now or the fund you're investing out of. I'm talking about a co- the span of your career. You know, what do you want, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want to do? I mean, what people are really judging you on right now is, uh, is how are you handling your current situation? If you view your current situation as a springboard, springboard for the rest of your career, uh, even if your current situation doesn't come out as well as you'd like it to, you're going to have demonstrated that you're a reliable person, one that people should invest in and rally around and, and view as an inspirational leader. Always asking yourself, circling back, are you doing the right things? Are you doing the right things for investors? Are you doing the right things for your employees? Are you doing the right things for your customers? So always looking around, you're 360, but, but not... You know, are you doing the right thing for yourself? It's how you're doing the right things for those constituents around you who are depending on you. And are you putting their interests ahead of your own where there is a potential conflict? So at the end of the day, it's the reputation that we build that matters the most. That's what you're, you know, if you want to know what, what you're building in your current company, uh, you might be building a product, you might be offering a service, but you're, what you're really doing is developing your reputation. And if you want to be a successful serial entrepreneur, uh, at the end of the day, that's what matters most. So here's a question. And this is one that you know, the companies I'm involved with, we still got to get a lot better at. Uh, do employees want to work at your company for all of the right reasons? So it's not do they want to work at your company, because there's a lot of reasons people work at companies that I would consider not the right reasons. All right, so you've got to know the difference between what the right reasons are and what might be motivations for people who work at a company that are the wrong reasons. So what are the wrong reasons? My boss leaves me alone. What a great job I have. My boss never bothers me. Well, you know, is that really why you, you know, come into work every day? I can't wait for my options to vest. I'm going to stick around here another year and a half because I'm in the money, and boy, I just want to see those vests. That's the reason your employees are sticking around. You're not doing something that you should be doing. Our benefits are unbelievable. We, you know, in the current one, of the current companies I'm involved with, Zale, we acquired some other companies, and one of the early ones we acquired. I mean, yeah, and I, I get the whole benefits thing, but that's all these people cared about was their benefits. I mean, the, the work environment was boring. The the company wasn't doing well, but man, you sit down with any employee, you do a roundtable. All they want to do is tell you, you're not going, you're going to touch my benefits. Our benefits are great. Well. Benefits are important, but if that's the primary reason you're coming into work, 
I would say that that's probably not a good inspiration. I never have to work late. Well, I guess if you want to go work for certain types of companies, that's okay. But companies I tend to be involved with, that's just not you know, the way it goes. You know, we want people who maybe don't want to work late every day, but people who do want to put in extra hours. Good place and tough economy, it's safe. You know, why would I leave here? It's safe. The economy's tough. I'm not going to leave right now. I'll wait till the economy gets better. Then I'll go find a better job. You know, if that's why you're retaining your employees, not good. You should see how much I make. Holy cow. I am so overpaid. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, if that's the reason people are working for you, because they make more for you than they could working for someone else, you know, that's a problem. You're living on borrowed time. That's one of the first things we look for when we're doing our consolidations. We look at what people are paid, and when we see salaries haven't got out of control, particularly in the top 10 or 20% of the people, that's the easiest synergy there is to get. Top 10% of the people, and you cut 35% of the wages, and usually by the time they got to that point, if they're overpaying themselves that much, they're probably not working that hard anyways. And uh, you know, we look like heroes to our investors, but really all we're doing is, is taking advantage of people who let their salaries get out of control. And my job is so easy. You know, I only have to think when I work. I just come in, I do my work, and I go home. It's great. So those are the wrong reasons. So let's talk about what I see as some of the right reasons. I'm respected. And at the end of the day, what people want when they work is they want to be respected for who they are, for what they do, for the service they provide, for the contributions they want to be respected. I mean, do your people feel like they're respected? If my company does well, I share in the financial reward. I mean, at the end it's about making money. I mean, maybe not under Obama, but at least, oh, <laughs> liberal, liberal crowd. <laughs> but the core of America, it is about making money. People do want to get paid. They do want to be treated fairly. Uh, they do want to know that if they help make investors money, they help make their senior team money, they want to know they share in the benefit as well, which I think is healthy. You know, paid fairly. So they don't want to be underpaid. They want to be paid fairly. They want to be overpaid. But I think the healthy reasons that employees feel like they're being paid fairly. Uh, the customers love us. I think this is something that's underestimated in terms of importance of a good work environment. You know, it's very easy to say we want to treat our customers right, but when the customers love what you do for them, everything else falls into place. You tend to make more money. Your investors tend to be happy. Employees tend to have better days at work because they don't have customers beating up on them. I mean, everything kind of falls in place if you're doing a good job for your customers. People feel pride. They feel a sense of accomplishment. Good benefits. So not exceptional benefits, but it's important to have the good benefits. Recognize that. Great coworkers. I like the people I work with. I respect them. I respect the people I work for. I, people, I respect the people who work for me. I, work, I respect my peers. Uh, I have just a good group of people to work with. My job is challenging. I'm learning new things. I'm, I have a career path to get ahead. And I'm proud of the way we create value for our shareholders. So it's not just that our stock price is going up or our investors are happy, but there's a sense of pride that employees feel on how the value is being created. And, of course, as Sandy May says, Cool shoes are optional. <laughs> so uh, those are the right reasons for employees to want to work at your company. Uh, this is aspirational. I, uh, you know, I would be the first to say that uh, the companies that I'm part of, uh, we've got work to do on this page more than any other page. Some of these I think we do a really good job at. Some of these I think we've got a long ways to go. 
but at least it's a roadmap. So lastly, do people around you want you to be successful? And this is Drew Brees with that famous picture of him holding up his child. I mean, all the things that were said about Drew Brees before and after he won the Super Bowl. I can't remember an athlete recently who achieved success and so many people around them just said, you know what, it couldn't happen to a better guy. I mean, he had people around him, his teammates, his coaches, his city, his family. I mean, everyone wanted the guy to be successful, and he was. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. Okay, I'm going to skip through this next part in the interest of time. Uh, it's just some of the stuff I'm involved with, just so you guys know a little bit about uh, my background, who I am. MFS is uh, a company that was around in the 90s that was one of the pioneers of competitive uh, telecom. I was there during its formative years, and then we sold to WorldCom, as I had mentioned earlier. Uh, WorldCom was a big consolidator of competitive telecom, and from afar, I watched WorldCom go bust. Best news there was it was from afar, and after I sold, by the way. <laughs> uh, level 3, I was uh, one of the initial members of the Level 3 team. Uh, we were certainly a leader, uh, and still they are in many respects, the telecom boom of the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, I joined in 97 right after WorldCom, and then I left to pursue other interests. Uh, there I experienced the highest highs and lowest lows. I mean, one of the things I benefited from throughout this whole phase of my career was seeing kind of things in the best of times and seeing things in the worst of times, not just within level three, but with, from that vantage point across the telecom and dot-com industry. You learned good habits, and you learned from a lot of bad habits, many of which uh, I know we had our own bad habits, but we also we observed a lot of others, so it's quite the learning experience. ICG, I led the buyout in the, in the last chapter of ICG's history, uh, and that's where I really built my relationship with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, a couple of my key investors. We just announced uh, a sale of New Global Telecom to Comcast in an exit that we would consider a good outcome exit just uh, this past month. So this was a company that was in Golden, Colorado, that uh, some of my uh, other investors are involved with. We got involved through our ICG days, and so I worked out pretty well for all, including Comcast. A small entity that uh, we kept out of the ICG, uh, when we sold to Level 3, we kept a small business. It was kind of an interesting story because Level 3, when they were buying it, buying the overall company, they said, you could either keep this or you could give this to us. We'll pay you the same either way. I said, I'll keep it. <laughs> and since then, we've turned that into quite a bit of value. That's all been, in fact, I think the original investment in all of ICG, so everything, our, our equity investors in ICG, they got back through, maybe not through voice, but through NGT. So they, you know, these two kind of add-on or adjunct investments were turned out to be worth more than the original uh, investment in all the company, even though they were kind of the sidelights. Another company, GTS Telecom, which is Central Europe, that several of my investors let it buy out of and I am involved with from a, a board and investor perspective. Envision, what I mentioned earlier, it's a, Envision is a company that has presented here in the past. It's a company I'm chairman of. It's managed video as a service. Very, very interesting new space of software as a service as it kind of comes together with video. One we're real excited about. It's been a long gestation cycle that we've had to stay with over a period of time. Fortunately, we haven't had to put that much money into it. Uh, but it really is uh, starting to get the kind of traction that we always envisioned it would. 
And then lastly, Zale Group, where I spend most of my time. This is a consolidator of the fiber telecoms that were built during the telecom boom, somehow survived the meltdown, and we've been pulling them together into a nationwide platform of these companies uh, around the story that we call bandwidth infrastructure. It's about $275 million in revenue and, and uh, very uh, profitable, uh, $90 million of EBITDA. And really, Zao consists of four companies underneath it. This is how it uses the Branson model to some degree, where each of these operated separate companies, branded uh, to some degree around the Zao name, but each of which act as separate entities. So in the closing messages, first thing I want to stress is telecom and internet infrastructure is alive and kicking. You know, a lot of us talk about green energy and, and, and healthcare, great fields, but we forget about, to some degree, telecom internet infrastructure, and that's a huge uh, uh, business uh, industry in the front range. It's one that is doing real well, even in this meltdown, and for as far as I can see, there's going to be opportunities in this area. So part of the evangelizing I, I want to do and get other people to do in the front range is to recognize how important this segment is, the sector is, to the economy and how vibrant it's going to be going forward. You know, we're still suffering from the hangover bit of the meltdown phase. Secondly, is the front range is a real solid uh, entrepreneurial environment. Uh, most people in this room know that, uh, but it's one I think we've got to get better at self-promoting. The Foundry Group, you guys do a fantastic job of driving this message home. I think the rest of us have to rally around this. I mean, there's creativity, there's a curiosity that is so unique to this area, an intellect, and a high-integrity culture. I mean, that, that's where I would describe kind of what's different about this area than, say, the East Coast or West Coast or some others. Not that they don't have their own interesting attributes as well, but, but it's a very entrepreneurial community. As I said, the, the community here needs to get more active and organized. We need to follow the lead that Foundry Group sets and, and, and all pitch in and help you know, re, reboost this area. And uh, I, w what's important to me is kind of building a, a stronger tie into the university system. Uh, and my bias is particularly to the University of Colorado because I'm in the Boulder area. But we have great universities uh, in the Front Range area. And the more active we as entrepreneurs and investors can get with those universities, the more we can uh, improve this community uh, and the quality of life out here. So thank you and uh, appreciate your time and attention.